Welcome to Writer, Writer, Pants on Fire, where authors talk about things that never happened to people who don't exist. I'm your host, Mindy McGinnis. You can check out my books and social media at mindymcginnis.com and visit the Writer, Writer, Pants on Fire blog at writerwriterpantsonfire.blogspot.com. Today's guest is Gwenda Bond, whose work includes the Lois Lane series and the Cirque American series. She also co-writes the Super Normal Sleuthing Service with her husband, author Christopher Rowe. She has written for Publishers Weekly, Locus, and the Los Angeles Times, has been a guest on NPR's Weekend Edition, and has an MFA in writing from the Vermont College of Fine Arts. Gwenda joined me today to talk about mentors who helped direct her path early on, how a job in journalism led to connections in the publishing industry, and the long wait of three years between becoming agented and her first sale. In her first adventure, Tor Maddox tumbled into a government conspiracy and shook up the White House. Now, she's working for the new government on an undercover assignment that's sure to get out of hand. Car crashes, kisses, explosions, and ballet. Read Tor Maddox, Embedded, by Liz Coley. I always start by asking my guests about your background and what led you to writing. Did you have any formal classes or degrees when you decided that you wanted to become a novelist? How did you make that jump from aspiring to actually becoming a published author? And also tell us a bit about your agent hunt and journey. I had a very long journey to publication. Like, settle in. I always wanted to be a writer from before I could actually read or write. I was always a kid that wrote and got praised in school for my writings, and they were terrible. And I went to a summer arts program in high school uh, in creative writing where I wrote a lot of bad politically-themed poetry, uh, and it was a bit of a troublemaker. Uh, My parents, I should say, were both, they started as teachers but were principals in a small town. They were my principals, my elementary and my high school principals. So it explains a lot, I think, about my authority issues. Um, (laughs) The good thing about that was I had always year-round access to the library, and they were always very supportive of me being a creative kid, even when that meant I was kind of a screw-up. So I went to college, then decided that I was going to major in journalism, because that was obviously the smart kind of degree that writers got because journalism is how writers make money. (laughs) Back then, it was at least a little more feasible, right? Oh, how times change. So I was a journalism major and an English minor. And during one of my last semesters in college, there was a professor in the journalism program who wrote screenplays. And he was an excellent teacher. We all have somebody who was encouraged us at the right moment or taught us what we needed at the right time. And so he was an early mentor of mine. His name was Jack Elwig. We're still in touch today. And he was the first person who ever told me, yeah, this is good, but it's not really good enough. You could do better. And that was when I really became somebody who thought a lot about writing. And so my first few years after college, I focused almost exclusively on screenplays. And got pretty good at writing them. I found a good critique group, another mentor named Max Adams, who does a bunch of classes and who I highly recommend, who taught me how to workshop. And and I sort of got to this point where it was kind of move out to L.A. to pursue that as a career or not. 
And I realized that I did not want to live in L.A. And that most of the people I knew who wrote screenplays for a living were miserable because even if they sold them, even if they got produced, they almost always got shared writing credit. I realized that realistically that was not actually the writing life I wanted. And during this time, I had taken a job in state government almost immediately out of college. I had thought about going to film school, screenwriting school. Another guy, a professor, as you can tell, I always like to hang out with older people. That was my jam. Um, one of my professors who had been a TV broadcaster and who tried to push me into that. And I'm like, no, I hate being on camera. I'm not going to do that. I actually recommended that I go work for the governor's office for their press secretary, who had been a colleague of his in journalism. I promise this is going somewhere. I will take this job for a short time, right? This will be my day job. Obviously, I'll become a full-time writer almost immediately. You know, sure, I'm going to keep this job. That was uh, 17 years that I spent in state government. During this time, I mostly worked with reporters. I eventually left the governor's office and went to work in health and family services. And it was a great day job. I had this realization that books were my first love and that's really what I wanted to write. And it coincided with what I think of as the boom of way renaissance right Mm -hmm. after Harry Potter, M.T. Anderson's books, Libba Bray's first book, not all of them, but a bunch of the people I was reading at that time had gotten degrees from the Vermont College of Fine Arts. Mm -hmm. So I did what any rational person would do. I said, I think I'm going to write way novels, so I better take on a bunch of student loan debt. (laughs) Obviously, that's a great choice for a writer to make. And I have met my husband, Christopher, at some point in here, and he was a writer, too, and he wrote science fiction and fantasy. And almost all of my other friends were science fiction and fantasy short story writers or novelists. It was a little odd for me to want to do YA, but I really felt like, because I always was hanging out with people slightly older than me, there were a bunch of writers who I really respected who were very helpful reading scripts and even the first terrible novel draft that I wrote before I decided to go to Vermont, I really felt this weird need to go get a community outside that and not just use them as my free teachers. In retrospect, I should have just used them as my free teachers and I wouldn't have to write those checks every month. So I went to Vermont College of Fine Arts and I did not try to get an agent the entire time I was there. I had not read a lot of YA and kids growing up, so I got really well-grounded in that in a way that I hadn't been before. That part was great. Again, I could have gone to the library, but it was great. I mean, I really, it was a great program. I don't regret the program. So I finished my book that I worked on, which was actually, was the third way novel I started, the second that I finished. My last semester advisor, Martine Levitt, who is a genius and one of the kindest people I've ever met, was very insistent. Okay, it's time for you to get an agent. So I put together some queries and I also had done a lot of nonfiction writing. As you could tell, I've always been all over the place. I had a blog that was pretty popular in the early days of literary blogs. Through that, became a contributing writer for Publishers Weekly. So I sort of was always head of toe in the writer world in addition to my day job. So I knew a bunch of agents. I knew agents I wanted to query and or had writer friends who had told me what agents I should talk to. So I sent out my queries on the day before, like New Year's Eve, because I figured then I won't have to worry about hearing back right away because everybody's on vacation and Someone I had known from that literary blogging scene, Jennifer Loughran, or as I knew her, Literati Cat. 
we had always been friendly online. And so she randomly, while I was sending queries, she wasn't actually on my list, pinged me in Gchat and asked if I almost had a novel ready to send out to agents. And so I was like, you know, it's funny you should say that. I was just getting ready to send you an email, um, which was a lie. She read the book immediately, and then we had a call on New Year's Eve. She gave me notes, and I felt really good about them. I talked it over with a few friends, and I just decided to sign with her. I mean, I did what you're not supposed to do, right? Like, I wrote all the other agents and basically just said, you know what? Never mind. And it's so funny when Jen tells people not to do this, and she's like, but it's okay when you did it with me. (laughs) We did not sell that book. We got lovely feedback, and it did not sell. I wrote another book, which also did not sell. I think I signed with her... It's like 2009 or 2010, and my first sale was in 2012. So Blackwood actually was the second YA project that I had started, and that was our first sale. We finally sent it to a little new imprint that Angry Robot was starting for YA books, and then we sold like a bajillion books together right after that. The agent hunt wasn't the hard part for you, but selling a book still took two years. It felt really long, and I felt very much like a fraud. Sometimes there are certain kinds of books that we love as readers. And Mm -hmm. I always think like, oh, I want to write that kind of book. But that's not really how I write. It's not really a book for me to write. I've gotten a lot better at spotting those, I think. A book that I can totally see in my head, someone else needs to write it. I love really slick spy movies. Yeah. I would never write that book. I don't have that ability. That's not in me. You got to know what your strengths are and your weaknesses. Yeah, and your natural voice just matches with some kinds of stories better than others. We talked about some of your releases. You've had Blackwood and The Woken Gods. And I want to talk a little bit about Girl on a Wire, which I love. The first in your Cirque American series, which that came out in 2014, right? Yes. Cool. It is also being released as a graphic novel series, which is super exciting. Do you think that your readers cross over from the novels to the graphics? Or are you looking to use the graphics to reach an entirely new audience? Honestly, that graphic novel story, the extra story for the Cirque American, just kind of fell in my lap. It was the publisher's idea. And they were like, would you be interested in doing a graphic novel set in this world or a four-issue comic book series?" And I'm yes! I think that they thought that it would be a good idea because of my Lois Lane fans, a lot of whom are comics readers, too. And I have always wanted to write comics. I've always loved comics. And so, obviously, this was kind of a great opportunity that they basically let me sort of handpick the team and we got people that we wanted on it. Kate Leth, who is amazing, and Ming Doyle. And I did the story and then Oversight got to edit Kate's scripts from my outline. And so it really was very helpful in terms of learning how the different way in which comics are put together. Everybody on that project really knocked their work out of the park. Kids love it. I just think teens, it's very difficult for them to know where to get comics. That is something that the comics publishers are still figuring out, too. And that audience is primed. I mean, I can tell you from being in the library, they freaking love graphic novels. We started with one shelf that was our graphic novels, and now there's an entire section that are our graphic novels, and they are constantly in circulation. Oh, yeah. 
I do think libraries are the key because so many kids just don't know or don't have the disposable income to go into bookstores. And comics publishers have finally started collecting things into ARCs more quickly. But libraries really are, I think, the main source for a lot of kids right now. Speaking of comics, you are probably most well-known for your Lois Lane series, of which there are three at the moment, Fallout, Double Down, and Triple Threat. So talk about how the opportunity to write Lois Lane came to you. So after my first two books were published, they did fine. I mean, they were from a tiny British publisher, so they did not like set the world on fire or anything, but they were pretty well-received. For some reason, Warner Brothers DC was looking for a writer to do this project with Capstone of a young Lois Lane, and they approached my agent and just really heavily like recruited me to do it. And it was kind of funny because I had just been at a retreat that Jen had thrown for a few of her clients who could make it in California, and I had very loftily said... I am not interested in doing any work for hire right now. Two weeks later, she calls me and she was like, so how serious were you about that? <laughs> because I have like something that I kind of think you'd be perfect for. And I was like, oh yeah, no, I was bullshitting. Like, no, that sounds great. <laughs> if I will have freedom. That was my big thing was, I don't want to be the person who gets to write this and it's terrible. Like, do they have mm-hmm. some it was super fleshed out plan? And she was like, they say that you will have freedom. And I was like, okay, then. And I remember I was driving to Asheville to do an event with some friends at Malaprops when we agreed to the terms. And the next day, I had the contract. And I didn't have to do any pitch in advance. And so then I got to work on the outline like right away and sent in a chapter-by-chapter outline. And there really was only that sentence was all that they gave me. Lois Lane is a teenager and a younger parent is her boss. I really did have freedom. Do you think that having a journalism degree and experience in journalism is one of the reasons why they approached you? No, I don't think they knew anything about me other than the two books that I had published. I think I was the person they could afford. I had good fit voice wise and I was nerdy and known for being nerdy. I never realized what a formative influence Lois Lane was on me until this opportunity came up and I really reflected on it. So I think even they had no idea what a perfect fit it would be. I'm just very grateful for that opportunity. I mean, it really is a dream gig. I know from personal experience of being with you at festivals and conferences, people often ask you if you had... How do they even put it? They're like, do you have the copyright? Are you allowed oh, to write yeah. this later? Yeah. <laughs> That's one of the top questions I get through my email. And it's like, no, you can't just do that. You have to have permission. Um, also, I do think there's this funny thing that happens that you'll see with women and not men where people be like, oh, it's basically like official fanfic. Only if you think of all comics that are based on pre-existing characters as fanfic. Comics has always been uh, the land of different people's takes on different characters. But I don't think that men ever get that. Just such like a buried sexism in it, you know? Uh, Yeah, definitely. (laughs) (laughs) That's the sexism Uh, sound effect. I've also got this. I have all kinds of sound effects. (laughs) Sexism! (laughs) 
Teenager Torrance Olivia Maddox is a heroine for our times, idealistic and impulsive. Count on Tor to cross the street to the side of right without looking both ways first. Now recruited by her forbidden crush, junior man in black agent Rick Turner, she's going undercover in her own high school to be eyes and ears. Knowing Tor, she'll go above and beyond her assignment to take on the threats of white supremacy and domestic terrorism all by herself. Read Tormatics, Embedded, by Liz Coley. Up next, how a writer's room-style project helped hone Gwenda's skills, co-authoring a middle-grade series with her husband, and giving herself permission to not work constantly once she became a full-time author. Okay, so I want to talk to you about a project that I wasn't aware of, and I thought it was really cool when I started looking at your Goodreads list. Last year, you were part of a serialized novel called Remade, available through Kindle. It was published in 15 episodes with multiple authors contributing to it. So talk a little bit about how that came to be and what function that kind of publishing served for you, like as a writer, like as a creative outlet or, or career-wise. So Serial Box is a new company. They're sort of doing a new thing, which I thought was very interesting. And I had known some people who were working with them in the lead up to this. And I have always considered short fiction to be, um, I'm not good at that. Like, I'm more of a natural novelist. And I wrote a couple short stories, very short stories for Lois Lane before the first book came out. I think Kirsten White, who was on the first season writing team had an episode that she was too busy to do. And so they were looking for a guest writer to do just one episode during their first season. I said, yes, it seemed like a good way to do short fiction that had some more parameters around it. Cause each episode's like 10 to 12,000 words long, thinking of it as an opportunity to build those skills and also to sort of get an inside look at this process. And so we're doing season two now. It's going to have three seasons. I joined the staff for season two, along with Amy Rose Capetta. We all got together for a story summit, and we plan out kind of what season two is going to look like over a long weekend in New York. We have giant cork boards, and we divvy up episodes, think about character beats that we want, the overarching story. And then we meet on Skype, and Mm -hmm. we break the season into phases And so we have little meetings with everybody over Google Hangouts where we read outlines and episodes and go back and forth. And there's a traditional editor and who goes over all the episodes and copy editing. And then the episodes are released as an ebook and an audio book that sync up in an an app and on all the major retailers. And some of the books of other serials, some of them have come out as books from, I think Simon Schuster is the publisher of the two that have been released so far as in a bound format once they're done, like an omnibus. Mm -hmm. Ours was the YA serial, and it's been interesting because the YA audience is less into eBooks. It's mostly the adult readers of YA that are interested in this. I think the process sounds amazing. I think team writing, writer's room approach would be so awesome. I I think that's really cool. I think that would be a wonderful way to, like you said, hone those skills. I agree with you. Short stories are harder (laughs) than novels. So these are structured a little bit like The Lost. So it's all these characters who died or were snatched Mm -hmm. at the moment of death by robots and taken to the future. So it helps a little bit that you've got the structure of whatever's happening in their present timeline and then flashbacks Mm -hmm. to their life on Earth. It has been very helpful. I still don't think I know how to write short stories. 
it, it is in some ways closer to poetry than it is to novels. You also have a middle grade series, the Supernatural Sleuthing Service. Supernormal Sleuthing Service. Damn it. <laughs> My bad. Okay, so you have a middle grade series, The Supernormal Sleuthing Service, which you co-wrote with your husband. So yeah. what's that like? What's it like working with your significant other? You know what? It was so fun. We write very different stuff in our regular writing life. Christopher has a very playful spirit. I mean, so do I. We're both very immature is what I'm saying. But, like, Christopher's very close to his inner 12-year-old. I always joke. <laughs> I had this idea, and he was sort of helping develop it. I was like, let's read this together. Because I felt like he would have an instant handle on the voice and would keep me from, like, angsting it into teen territory. It was really fun. We just passed it back and forth, brainstorming. We didn't do a ton of planning in advance, which meant we had to do quite a bit of revision. And probably the hardest part for us was figuring out the process, especially as we're we're getting ready to edit the second one now. Christopher is a better drafter than I am, and I'm a better reviser than he is. So he does a little more of the heavy lifting on the drafting side. And I do help do the planning and the plot and make sure we have a story. And then I take point when we're doing edits. And if there is new stuff that has to be written, like whole new scenes or chapters, then a lot of times he will write those. And I will do more of the like massaging scenes and and changing them up. So it's good because we have kind of complementary skill set. And really when we're writing them, we're just trying to make each other laugh. He writes a thousand words, I write a thousand words, is how we do it. And then he will read over what we've written for that day out loud, which is always fun because he does voices. Mm-hmm. As you can tell, I really love to collaborate. I think it's a nice break from the solo mm-hmm. hell of writing your own stuff. It's easier to have confidence in someone else's work than in yours, especially yep. if you're not a super good drafter. That's basically how we write those. And doing school visits together is really fun. We started working on this. Right after I had just finished terrible crunch rewrite from scratch over three months for my second book and was feeling very burned out. So it was a real regenerative, restored the joy in the process kind of a thing. You know, it's interesting to me that you had such a good experience co-authoring with your husband because my boyfriend is a photographer and five years ago he was going to take my author picture. I'm like, this is great. You know, I got a professional <laughs> photographer in the house. It's like, he can just take my author photo and save me like a grand. Right. Oh my God. No, like we can't work together. Oh no. And it's not because we don't get along. It's because we're too nice to each other. He wasn't comfortable telling me what to do. We don't have that problem. Cause I am very bossy. <laughs> Christopher and I, we work completely differently when we're not working together, okay? Mm -hmm. Like, I very much am, like, a kind of a plug away, like, sort of always working or I feel panicked. Christopher is way more of the procrastinate and then sprint out a whole bunch of stuff with his normal Mm -hmm. process. He has made more concessions than I have in that he basically (laughs) just conforms to the process that will keep me from going crazy. So you're an extremely busy person in your creative life. But you keep up with your social media. You do tons of appearances. And then you're also, you're politically active. So do you have a particular method for your time management? I'm easily bored. Yeah. <laughs> I have a couple things going for me. Blackwood just came out in a slightly different form yesterday. A Strange Alchemy is getting mm-hmm. a hardcover release for my publisher who did Lois Lane books. 
Mm-hmm. And I changed it up a little bit. That's my 10th release since 2012. Honestly, there's no way I could do any of this without having really supportive family and friends. Like Christopher is just, it's just not an issue and it never was. When we first got together, you know, I was an aspiring for a long time. But I worked just like I work now on projects. And he never acted like it was hobby. And also we don't have kids. I'm way more in awe of people who have kids and manage to get a lot done. I was the opposite of organized in college. And I think after college, I realized that I'm a lot less anxious when I'm working. The hard thing for me, and I think you and I have talked about this because we both became full-time writers around the same time, the difficulty of coming to terms with the fact that I'm not actually more productive now than I was before. No, I just have more time to like be a human yep. being. And it, it's taken me like a year to get to the point where I'm okay with that. My work process is very similar. Like I'm not a multitasker. If I'm writing something, I let emails pile up. I try to save all my emotional energy for the work. Then I will go through periods where I feel like very lazy. I'm working on a book right now that's not contracted. A YA book that I just was working on this spring and before deadlines kind of kicked in. And I'm trying to like let myself have the time to like let it build rather than forcing myself to write it quickly because it doesn't have a deadline. So why would I write it that way? That has been a really interesting, rewarding process. I do sometimes employ time management techniques. If I'm having trouble getting stuff done, though usually it's because my brain is figuring something out. If I'm stalling, like Mm -hmm. subconsciously on something, it's because deep down in there I haven't figured it out yet. Exactly. And so learning to trust your process, I think, is a big part of it. But it is really hard when you're used to having had a full-time job and then the full-time job of your writing and then your life to, like, basically not feel guilty all the time because you're not working 24-7. Lastly, how gaining reverted rights to her first release gave Gwenda the chance to rework that novel, how it found new life with a fresh title, and where to find Gwenda online. Talk to me about Blackwood being re-released as Strange Alchemy. How did that come about? I think my agent had just kind of mentioned my editor at Capstone that I had these two books that I got the rights back to. So my first books, like the imprint that published them, went under the year after the second one was published. The rights reverted. I had just spent money to have the Blackwood formatted and get it covered and stuff when the offer came mm-hmm. <laughs> oh I was like, of course. Strange Alchemy was actually the original title, but because the first imprint that put it out was called Strange Chemistry, we changed oh. it. And my editor asked me to consider, could put it in um, dual first person, alternating chapters between the boy and the girl. And I thought that that was actually an interesting idea. So I did it, and it was really, it was fun. I'm really happy that it's back and is getting a new lease on life. And I got to fix a few little things that have bugged me since it was published. And, you know, Kirkus hated it the first time it came out. And I remember that was the first trade review I ever got. And I remember walking down the street and being like, well, my career's over before it started. Clearly, I'm a failure. They also hated the reissue, so they're consistent there. It got good reviews from the other trades, so that I'm grateful. I haven't gotten my copies yet, so it doesn't feel quite real. It's cool to have that book come back. I think that means I only have one. Uh, the Woken Gods is available in ebook only because that was the other one that I got the rights back to. So we'll see. Maybe it will 
it was meant to start a series. And so mm-hmm. I would have to decide whether I would want to go back and finish that duology before it could be reissued. But Blackwood was a nice standalone. All mine are still in print, but if I ever had that opportunity to get my rights back on things, I, I would definitely take it. Oh, yeah. Like, that would be awesome. Tell us about where listeners can find you online and your social media so that they can follow you. Okay. Because you're really active and um, oh, always an interesting tweet stream. <laughs> oh, yeah. So I'm on Twitter, like, way too much. It's just at Gwenda because we knew someone who was on Twitter beta back in the day who invited us. Back then it was you tweeted in teams. You could only see the tweets of people on your team. Um, oh wow so you were like ground floor twitter oh yeah i mean i was like this is boring and just stop using it but i had claimed my name learned a long time ago always claim your name on anything claim your name it might take off yep i have my name claimed on social media sites that will never hello 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 yeah (laughs) anyway uh, I'm also on Instagram. I like doing those little videos and pictures that go away in 24 hours. Um, and I'm yep. just going to bond on there. And I do a tiny letter fairly regularly. That's tiny letter and then Gwenda, if you go to tinyletter.com. And I have a website, but those are the main places to find me. Writer, Writer, Pants on Fire is produced by Mindy McGinnis. Music by Jack Corbel. A special thank you to fellow authors Alyssa Palombo and R.C. Lewis, as well as patron Stephen Avery for helping to make this episode possible. If you find the blog or podcast helpful, please consider showing your support by visiting patron.podbean.com forward slash writer, writer, pants on fire and making a donation. I'm your host, Mindy McGinnis, and we'll be back next week with another episode of Rider Rider Pants on Fire, where authors talk about things that never happened to people who don't exist. <laughs>